people said, Amen. I hope your heart was singing along. The children can be dismissed to Children's Church now for those families that want to utilize that ministry. And for the rest of us, please open up your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17. We carry on in this glorious gospel, the exposition of the gospel of God according to Luke. And we need to remember where we are in this glorious word. Jesus is on the road. He's traveling. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's exhorting. He's discipling. He's exposing. And he is headed all the way to Jerusalem and to the cross. And last week we were confronted with what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be in the school of Christ, to be walking with Jesus in the school of discipleship. And we were reminded that along the way as we're walking with the Lord Jesus Christ that we will face temptations in this life all the way to the end until we cross over the other side and see Jesus face to face. We'll face temptations that rise up from our own hearts. And we'll face temptations that come from the fallen world all around us. But in that, we have the great power to deal with this. It's the same glorious great power that raised Jesus from the dead, the resurrection power to deal with our temptation. We take it to Christ, and he saves us, and he keeps us, and he watches over us. And we were also called as disciples of Christ, as we are in this school of Christ, to not only watch over our hearts, but to watch over the little ones in our midst, to watch over the young ones in the faith, that faith that we must never cause a little one in the faith to stumble in coming to Jesus. We must watch over our words. We must watch over our doctrine and our teaching that we would never cause a little one to fall away from Christ. And Jesus further taught us in the school of Christ that we need to be about the glorious gift of extending forgiveness. He showed this to us in the passage before what we're coming to today, that if a brother sins against you, you go to him, you tell him his fault. And if the Holy Spirit moves and brings faith and repentance and confession, it's your joy to extend forgiveness and to see restoration And he emphasized this to the point where he said, even if it happens seven times in a day, you must do it out of the joy of the Lord, the gift of forgiveness and peace. Well, this is because the Lord has given us so much more forgiveness each and every day in our lives and the grace that we have in Christ, so we must offer it to others in forgiveness. And lastly, we learned in the school of Christ that we were given the gift of living living faith that that even if it's as small as a little mustard seed, it's attached to the power of the universe, the Lord Jesus, that we might do exceedingly more than we could ever imagine when we step out in faith and seek the Lord and obey and move and live and love and trust. Amazing things happen. And in all of this, we are called to be humble. That's how Jesus left us in the school of Christ last week. We're called to be humble, the most humble of all people, because we are bankrupt in our sin and in our brokenness and in our weakness. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ has come and given us everything that we need. 
We are so in debt to God because we are fallen. We've been created to serve the Lord, to obey the Lord. And in our fallen state, what we do is we disobey and we run. And so we owe God a great debt, a debt that we could never pay. But God doesn't owe anyone anything. And so hallelujah, by the gift of Christ, he came out of eternity and took upon the form of a servant and served us in this broken world and accomplished the glories of salvation and peace and forgiveness and the gift of righteousness for those who believe in him. Well, that brings us to our holy text today where we are met by the walking dead on the road to Jerusalem. So give attention to the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 17. Verses 11 to 19, the word of the Lord. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The word of the Lord to us. May he write it upon our hearts and souls for all eternity. Well, no matter the time, no matter the place, the proper response to Almighty God is always a heart of thanksgiving. It's always one of of gratitude in the face of, of grace that we receive. And we must give praise. And this is what we see throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you consider the mighty acts of God's redemption in the Old Testament, whether that be for an individual like Noah or Abraham or Moses or for a nation or for the nations, the right response, the proper response to the Lord and his work is a heart bursting with thanksgiving and praise. And isn't this the the heart of the Psalms, the very heart of God's word to us, which we've just heard sung, Psalm 77, the the emotive, glorious prayer praises of God's people. Don't we see this even with the Psalms of lament in the middle of the Bible? They still break upon the shores of thanksgiving and praise and thankfulness to the Lord. But you see, when we consider the opposite of a heart of grace and gratitude, when we think of a heart filled with pride and arrogance like that of of the Pharisees or Pharaoh or even Judas, the one who was right there in the immediate presence of the, the Lord of glory in the flesh, who was doing his work of redemption, loving and serving and living. And yet Judas was there with no thankfulness in his heart filled with greed, filled with bitterness, filled with hatred. So you see, this is the line of demarcation for all of humanity. There are two types of people. 
There are two groups of people on planet Earth, either a heart struck by God's grace that has the disposition breaking forth with gratitude and thankfulness, or a heart enclosed with pride and arrogance, greed and bitterness, so that nothing is enough. Nothing is enough for such a heart. No thankfulness. There's, there's complaining. There's ungratefulness. So you see, a, a sin-broken, thankless heart is the fallen human condition. Although we live out our lives within the theater of God's glory and every human being knows that there is a God and He is eternal and He is good, in our brokenness, in our fallenness, we refuse to give Him thanks and praise. That's the summation of the human condition by Paul at the end of Romans chapter 1. So you see, we desperately need a Savior. We desperately need to have our eyes open to our spiritual condition, which is dead in sins and helpless. And we must have the eyes of our hearts open so that we see the true high priest of glory, the only one that can stand for us between us and holy God and bring forgiveness and healing and eternal life. Well, that's what Jesus does as he orchestrates meetings. That's what Jesus is all about. He's about meeting people on the, the highways and the byways of our lives, here in the gospel and here in our own world. Here in the gospel, in his, in his earthly ministry, he met people on the way to expose their hearts and give them grace. And by his Holy Spirit, he's doing it today. So he's on the road. Somewhere between Galilee and Samaria, he's headed to Jerusalem, and, and he's confronted by the walking dead, these ten lepers. And that brings us to our first main point this morning, first of four. Living faith seeks mercy in the Lord. Living faith seeks mercy in the Lord. As, as we walk through the pages of God's word, we are introduced to many lepers. This horrible disease that was so disgusting as it grew and, and manifested. It's, it's a disease like none other in the sense that instead of working in the secret place of your body where it's concealed, it works all over the body from the outside in and the inside out. And a leprous person was basically being eaten alive disfigured, destroyed. And you see, the leprosy that we see here in the pages of Scripture was a horrible physical problem that ultimately illustrates a horrible spiritual reality because God uses the physical to point to the spiritual to teach us. So in these lepers, we really do see a picture of our spiritual state. We see human desperation in the face of sin. We see suffering. We see hopelessness. We see separation from God. We see a death sentence. That's what this is. And, you know, we must not minimize sin, and we must not minimize our need for a Savior. Only a fool does that. So in Leviticus chapter 13, God gave instructions to his people on how to handle leprosy. A leper was to present himself to the priest and they would examine the body to see if in fact it was leprosy. And if it was, then the person was declared to be unclean and they were driven out of the community. They were driven out of the camp. They were driven outside the people of God from before the face of God and his presence. I mean, just think about how horrible 
that would be. Try to get yourself there experientially to be driven away from the most important relationships in your life, your spouse, your children, your family, your friends, separated. And here they were wearing dirty, tattered clothing, rags, their hair left unkept, living on the margins of of life, eking out an existence. And of course, this is the most horrifying thing that an ancient Israelite could could be designated as, as being unclean, driven away from the place of worship, driven away from the community, outside of God's people. Have you ever felt outside? I'm sure you have at some point in your life. You're on the outside. You're not in the in crowd. You know how that feels. It hurts to desire a relationship, and yet you can't have one. You're, you're on the outside. You're driven away. You're not part of the group. Well, multiply that feeling by 10 times 10 million and you might scratch the surface of what it was like to be a leper in ancient Israel. And that's just a teardrop in the ocean of what it feels like to be forever on the outside of God's glorious, good, and merciful presence forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, not only did these lepers look like death and they smelled like death, but they even sounded like death. Can you imagine meeting somebody on the road whose nose was eaten away and the, the disease of leprosy would even attack the throat so that they couldn't even speak right? They're walking dead. That's the picture. What a horrible circumstance. I can't imagine a human being living in such a situation. Well, here are these lepers. They've banded together. They're seeking the one who can heal them. And you know, in many ways, being delivered from such a disease really would be like being brought back from the dead, wouldn't it? Just think how we take for granted the most basic things of human companionship and relationship. The most basic expression like holding hands. Or that most tactile and wonderful expression of leaning forward and kissing your bride on the lips. You couldn't have it. Driven away. Life falling apart. Flesh falling off your body. Dying from the outside in. They couldn't have any of this. So they come seeking mercy from the only one who can give it. That sets the, the stage for the drama that we see here. Verse 13, they come and they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy. Have mercy. We see the cry for mercy. They recognize their only hope. The cry for mercy, a reflection of, of true faith, seeking the one who can bring forth what they desperately need. This is the application for us, brothers and sisters. We must approach Christ with the same acknowledgement of our own need and come in faith to seek his power to save and to sanctify, to bring us ever deeper into fellowship and union and communion with him. Well, I think it's interesting here. Luke uses this word master only six times in his gospel. Lord and master, master and commander of the universe of time and space in the world. You see, the other five times that this title, this word, this, this designation is used is by the apostles of Jesus. 
Those that would go forth and spread the gospel to the nations called Jesus Master. And here are these lepers. They come and they cry out, Master, Master, Jesus have mercy. Well, you know, no doubt after Jesus had been walking the roads of Palestine, fulfilling his earthly ministry, doing glorious works of, of miracles and preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, it's like a bomb had gone off reverberating out from every town and every place that he went. Have you heard? Have you heard about this rabbi Jesus? Speaking words like we've never heard before, doing things like we have never seen before. And so now, no doubt these lepers had heard of this one. And they're seeking him. Jesus, master, mercy. Well, it's important for us to see the glory of what they're saying here, to really get a picture of their heart, their desperation, and their faith in motion. You see, this Greek word, mercy, used here is the same Greek word used in the Old Testament Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Septuagint. It's the same word used to translate the Hebrew word for unmerited grace and favor, God's loving kindness. So that's the picture. These lepers are crying out, Jesus, Master, grace, grace, unmerited favor, save us, heal us. They understand the plight. They're dying. They smell like death. They look like death. And I think it's interesting that there's 10 of them and that Jesus points that out. In this narrative, 10, 10 is a very significant number in the Hebrew mindset. It, it denotes a, a, a completeness. And you see these 10 lepers, they really do represent in some way the spiritual rot and death of fallen humanity in Adam. The reality of all of us and who we are, our plight, our state as spiritual zombies because of Adam's fall and the reality of our own rebellion so that Throughout all the days of our lives, fallen in our sins, showing forth who our, our spiritual head is, Adam. Finally, at the very end, when death comes for us, the body decays and goes into the grave, stamping the reality upon the spiritual truth. Brothers and sisters, in and of ourselves, we're spiritually dead. We're the walking dead. But these lepers, they come to the only one who can do anything about it, and they cry out, Jesus, Master, grace, grace, grace. They cry out from that place of bankruptcy and utter dependency upon the Lord. And, and isn't it the Lord Almighty in his very name who he is and what he does? I think it's wonderful we serve a confessional God. And he makes confession about who he is and what he does. I mean, when he stood before Moses in the wonder of that moment in Exodus, and he said, the Lord, the Lord, the I am, the I am. I am compassionate and merciful and loving and forgiving. That's who he is. That's what he does. Well, hallelujah, this is who the Lord is. And this is what the Lord does. And that's what we see in our next point. Living faith receives grace from the Lord. 
Living faith receives grace from the Lord. Notice how delightfully and wonderfully, quickly, Jesus responds to this heartfelt plea. Mercy. Grace. Immediately the word comes forth. Go, show yourselves to the priests. He responds in love. He hears their cries. The Lord delights to hear the cries of his people. And he's quick to respond. That's the Jesus of the Gospels. That's the Lord of the resurrection. And he's, he hears these, these passionate pleas. And he has a heart that's moved to compassion. And he responds. Interestingly, these lepers, they're told to go to the priest to prove their cleansing. This is to fulfill the law there in, in Leviticus. That, that they would have to go forth and show that they had been made whole and clean. And no doubt, this is a testimony to the priests in Jerusalem that the one who heals the lepers is coming. But think about it. There's a, a sequence to this healing, isn't there? This is different than, than the other healings that we see Jesus do. Jesus healed all manner of people in all manner of ways, sometimes with a word, sometimes with a touch. He even made the mud with his spittle and put it on a blind man's eyes, and he saw but here, there is a sequential aspect to this healing. They come to Jesus and they cry out for mercy and Jesus gives a command. Go, show yourself. Two parts to this healing. They have to start moving towards Jerusalem. They have to act upon faith to receive the grace. Don't they? Well, this reminds me of a story about Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. He was on a British vessel heading off to China to, to enter into his mission field and after a long, long journey, they hit a patch of no wind. And the, the boat just began to drift. And even though there was no wind, they couldn't drive their direction. The current was pulling them right into an island that was known to be inhabited by cannibals. And so the captain of the ship came to Hudson and said, Hey, Hudson, you missionary, we're in a dire strait. You need to pray. You need to pray for our deliverance. We need wind. And Hudson said, Well, I'll pray on one condition, that you raise all the sails. And the captain said, I'll raise the sails when I feel the wind on my face. And Hudson said, Then I won't pray. Captain stormed off. What does this missionary know about sailing? Well, the plight was growing. The drift was continuing. The island was getting larger. There it was. They were going to run ashore. They were certainly facing death. So the captain comes back and pleads, all right, all right, I'm raising all the sails. Pray. So Hudson goes down into the belly of the ship, and he goes down upon his knees, and he begins to intercede. And the wind came, and they were delivered. You see, brothers and sisters, we must exercise the gift of living faith so that the sails of our hearts are wide open, ready to receive the gift of the Lord and the grace of the Lord. We must pray in faith. We must walk in faith. We must act in faith. And I think it's interesting. We find something similar in the Old Testament, don't we, with, a, with another leper, this man named Naaman who was a warrior, 
the commander of the Syrian army, and he was struck with leprosy. But he had a Hebrew servant who said, my God heals lepers. And so Naaman, driven by desperation, went to Israel to seek this God that heals lepers. And he found his way to Elijah, the great prophet. And he was told, go to the Jordan, wash yourself seven times, and you will be healed. Well, Naaman was angry, and he thought this was silly. Why should I do this? Just heal me. What's so great about this river? But the servant said, Master, this is a great word from the Lord. Do and receive. And he did, and he was cleansed, and he was healed. Well, we must place our trust in Jesus. He's the, the greater Elijah. He is the great prophet of God, the word of God in the flesh. And he's the greater Aaron. He's the great high priest of God who is the one who comes forth compassionate, ready to save, ready to hear our pleas, ready to provide life-giving grace that we need. Well, hallelujah, there's this sequential miracle that takes place. They cry out, Jesus responds, they obey, and on the way they were cleansed. And I think it's interesting the word that Luke uses here for cleansing. It's tied directly to the religious and spiritual necessity of being cleansed of our sins. It's not just like the word used for to clean a cup or to wash a dish. It is a word tied directly with atonement. We must have our hearts cleansed of sin, washed clean. Just like the great hymn, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Lord, or I die. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins where he can make the vilest clean. We must be washed. Can you imagine all the emotions, all the thoughts rushing through their heads and, and hearts as they ran to Jerusalem, as they were going on the way, and all of a sudden, wham, healed, realizing the, the wonder of it all, the deliverance, the healing, thinking about all those important people that they hadn't been able to see and touch and hold, that they would go to. But isn't it interesting? This one leper, cleansed and healed by the Lord from Samaria, who was a despised one by the Jews, that after being healed, he would still be despised by the Jews. He only had one person on his mind, Jesus. And he had to get back to him. He had to give him praise and thanksgiving. And that brings us to our third thought. Living faith gives gratitude to the Lord. Living faith gives gratitude to the Lord. Only the objects of grace given forth by God, eclipsed by the love of God, give back the glorious praise and gratitude that is so richly due. You know, we have to remember that the Samaritans, they had their own priest, they had their own place of worship, Mount Gerizim. And Jesus in John chapter 4, you know, he, he corrected the woman at the well about the true place of worship. So they're headed out, ostensibly the nine to Jerusalem and the one to, to Gerizim. And, and here he is overcome with the reality of what's happened and the, the primacy of praise breaks into this man's heart. Yes, he's following the Lord's command. He's moving by faith. He's been healed. 
And then he has this hallelujah moment. I have to go to the Lord and give him praise. And what do we see? He comes back glorifying God loudly, publicly. And he falls prostrate on his face before Jesus, the right place to be before the Lord of glory. And he gives him worship and praise. And here in verse 16, what we see is he cries out with the Eucharist Deo. That's the word that we have for the the table, the thanksgiving. When we receive grace, it produces gratitude that is expressed in thanksgiving. That's the Christian life and experience. Brothers and sisters, our, our lives must reflect our thankfulness for God's grace. Not just in words, but in deeds and in worship as we gather together in praise and as we live out before the watching world, running the race, receiving the grace, giving the gratitude. And in doing this, the blessing just keeps getting better, doesn't it? Because Jesus affirms this man's faith. He builds him up. He gives him assurance. He confirmed his faith. That's our final thought as we look at this. Living faith is confirmed by the Lord. Living faith is confirmed by the Lord. Well, of course, the Lord Jesus, he's in control of the situation. He's in control of every situation. He's working all things according to the mystery of God's providential will. And the way this goes is the blessing just keeps coming. The man comes back praising. And Jesus confirmed his faith and gives him assurance. Jesus receives the humble sinner who comes in faith. We have to see the the glory of the inclusivity of the gospel. Here's this Samaritan man, this despised man, and Jesus receives him. The gospel is for every person on this planet. No matter their race or their gender or their social standing. And here we see the one who is nobody in the eyes of the religious elite is received and assured by the only somebody who's ever walked the face of the earth, the Lord Jesus. Well, you know, we don't know the rest of the story about the other nine, the nine men that were healed. But we know what Jesus says to the Samaritans. Stand up. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And the same word for well can be translated, your faith has saved you. Because you see, the gift of, of living faith and saving faith, it's like the umbilical cord that attaches the baby to the mother. It's the gift that, that is given that we would receive the gift of life. And he has it. And so we're confronted today with the question, where will we take our brokenness? Where will we take our spiritual disease and our sin and our unrighteousness and our despair and our grief that is real? Let's not deny it. Where will we take it? Where will we go with that? Will we heed the call of God, the the confession of Almighty God that he sent forth his son to receive sinners, to save sinners, to bless us, to give us everything that we need for life? He offers himself to us today. Be cleansed. Be washed. Be made holy. Unburden yourself. Unburden your sins upon the Lord. There's one last thing that we need to see here as we 
come to the end of this text. You see, in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, this man shows forth the glory of just how big the promises of the gospel. Because it's not just for Israel, but it's for the nations through Israel. And what we see here is the inversion of what took place as Israel was going forth, the outsiders, the alien, the aliens and the foreigners, they weren't allowed to come into the place of worship. If somebody tried to break in and run into the temple, an outsider, an alien, they'd be put to death. And what we see here in verse 18, this word, it's used to translate the word outsider. You see, those who are outside the camp, those who are outside the temple, those who are unclean. So think about this. At the very moment that the Lord Jesus Christ cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Brothers and sisters, in him, in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to hear hallelujah. He was made to be the outsider that we might be the insider in him. To know fellowship with the living God, to know atonement and peace, to know adoption, to be brought in, to know the joys of a new life, to know the joys of salvation. Well, this is what we see. This is what empowers a heart of Eucharisteo. Grace and gratitude produce thanksgiving and praise. And that's what we see. And brothers and sisters, as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we come to the Lord's table, this is a table that is laid for us by Jesus himself that cries out grace and gratitude. Grace and gratitude. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament. It's a holy, mysterious meal that adorns the word of God, the promises of God. So that you hear the word spoken and then you see these very real, tangible elements set apart, sanctified by Jesus for a holy purpose. The physical points to the spiritual. His broken body, his poured out blood. We take hold of these elements of, of bread and the fruit of the vine and the spirit testifies to our hearts that we really and truly have a real savior flesh and blood, resurrected and ascended, who intercedes for us even now. The great high priest of love and salvation and peace. So as we come to the supper, we need to remember that it's both a sign and a seal. It's a sign that signifies the reality of gospel work. Jesus' painful, shameful death upon the cross in our place. But it's also a seal in that the Holy Spirit fills our hearts with greater joy so that as we eat and drink, we really do feed upon Christ by faith and we're nourished and we're strengthened and we experience more of the joy of the Lord that we might offer up more thanksgiving and praise. And we don't do that alone. We do that together. The family of God. That's what the supper is. Grace and gratitude brought into fellowship from the outside to the inside in the joy of the Lord. So are you ready to offer your heart to the Lord even now as you eat and drink? Then you be, better be ready to offer your heart and your life even now to your brothers and sisters who commune 
with you. Hear Hebrews chapter 10 as we come to the meal. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 